This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland, from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. So in case you missed it, there was an election this year. Americans turned out in record numbers to make their voices heard through voting. Americans voted to make our country a more perfect and inclusive union by voting for police reform, drug reform, decriminalization, and legal justice reform. Americans also voted for a more inclusive representation that looks like our diverse country. But we also know, definitely after this election, we are a very politically divided nation. As we head into 2021, many are asking, where do we go from here? And how can Maryland become the state that we all want to live in, particularly those who have been historically harmed by our government? The ACLU of Maryland does not just name problems. We work for systemic solutions. To talk about where we are and where we are going, we will speak to Dana Vickershelly, Executive Director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Maryland and Marion Gray Hopkins, president of the Coalition of Concerned Mothers, mother of Gary Hopkins, who was killed by police in Prince George's County, and is an ACLU board member. Hi, Marion. At our board meeting a few days ago, you were speaking so powerfully about what was different about this moment, about 2020, um, where we are right now in terms of making a difference as we reimagine policing. You use the word feeling hopeful for the first time. And that, um, that really stood out for me. And we will do everything that we can through your leadership and others to make sure that, that we have a different result. But what, what, makes you feel hopeful about this particular time. And I wanted to step back for just a minute, Dana, and just say that you're not going to let us down. I will tell you that ACLU has not let us down yet. I think the difference that I'm feeling in this go round and why I'm feeling so hopeful is because of the diversity of those we have engaged now. I look back over the years and people will come and people will go. And with the recent murder of George Floyd back in May. People have been relentless. And, and when I say diversity, I'm looking at, out there at the folks that have been out there on, on the front ground since May. I mean, you see young, you see old, white, black, LGBTQ. It's just beautiful to look at that and see that I honestly believe that people have said enough is enough. And because of that, I use those words at our last ACLU meeting to say that I'm feeling hopeful because it does, it, it actually, I mean, it does, it just feels different this time. And we've had uprisings in the past, just, you know, in Baltimore, when we had the murder of Freddie Gray, and yes, I say murder, not the killing, the murder of Freddie Gray. And people were out there and it just didn't seem like it was as it is now worldwide since George Floyd, and also I want to throw out Breonna Taylor. People want to see something different. And I know that the ACLU, again, has always been on the front ground of, you know, 
and I'm in the forefront of this. So thank you to ACLU for all of the work you have done, not just now, but over the many years that we've been trying to get change here in the state of Maryland. And I think actually to follow up on that, um, you know, what what did both both you, Dana, as executive director, and also Marion, as you know, people who have been doing this work for so long, what do you see in terms of us like continuing this fight and continuing to to make uh, real strides in this effort, particularly um, in the next legislative session? What I, I I say to that, I think that again, I mean, it kind of goes back again to the, I mean the folks that we have in, involved and people coming in numbers, coming in masses to say that we are not asking for change, but we are demanding change. And I think we have not been as good as holding our legislators accountable. And now we're digging deep and saying that if you can't and will not initiate these changes that we are demanding, that we're gonna vote you out of, of office. And I think they are in fact hearing us as well. One of the things that I think is so different about this time going into the 2020 session, 2021 session, um, as you said, that we have this still relatively new crop of delegates in some cases and senators who are now in, in leadership positions are more, I mean, the, when we talk about diversity, it, we're seeing it on so many levels. So we're seeing leadership among the committees and at the highest um, positions, right, in the legislature where there are people of color. With that, ACLU and the organizations led by directly impacted families and mothers and communities, such as your organization, Marion, um, Coalition of Concerned Mothers, are reminding the elected officials that they work for the people. And they're hearing, I think it has made a big difference as they're hearing from us, but they're hearing from direct constituents because in some cases people could say, well, this is just the ACLU, you're a statewide organization, you're supposed to do certain things. When they hear the, your story, when they hear the story of Gary Hopkins Jr., when they hear about Tyrone West, when they hear about Corin Gaines, um, when Mrs. Elliott talks about the loss of her son so many years ago, it makes a difference. We've seen that in conversations that families have had with the attorney general this year, as well as these preliminary conversations that people are having with legislators. They're hearing, they're hearing from their constituents and they're hearing from people who are professionals, who are experts, that's a better word, who are experts because of their lived experience, which these elected officials are beginning to understand. And I think those of us in the advocacy community are understanding that better we at ACLU Maryland have, because race equity is, is centered, is what the, the core of our work is. There's no other way that we work, but now as we get toward the legislative session, they're hearing from the legislators and policymakers are hearing from people with direct experience. So they're hearing the power of the lived experiences and the pain that families have, have dealt with. And again, expertise from the families to get real world, real life solutions, how to make a difference that's long lasting. I wanna to add to that because we have in the past, we have gone before legislatures and we have shared our stories. 
but we haven't seen the change. I think added to that, we have more community involvement that are backing those families that have been um, affected um, by police brutality and by racial injustices. And in the past, we didn't, we had more families because, you know, when you hit hard, when it hits you, when it hits your door, you're more apt to be out there to fight. But we're not fighting this fight by ourselves anymore. And to me, that also shows um, the change that we are experiencing, uh, which is, which feels really, really good. And it goes back, I keep going to go back to hopeful. And, you know, and that's why I keep saying that I'm, I'm feeling hopeful because it's not just us that have been, been impacted, but the community and the masses that are standing behind us to say enough is enough as well. And actually, I just want to add to that, like the, the fact that, you know, so many people, um, you know, a year ago, if I said Leobor reform, um, nobody would know what in the world I was talking about. Um, and now, you know, more and more people are understanding both the acronyms um, that, that have been used to oftentimes like to exclude people, make them confused as to what we're really fighting for. Um, and that the, some of the nuance um, and understanding of that is there and, and really awakening of their political power. But I wanted to actually talk to you, ask you all about like, you know, going through some of the specifics, right? The things that we're gonna be asking legislators and really demanding of legislators that they do in the next uh, legislative sessions. Um, I'll start because one of the ones you just, you threw out there is Leobor. We've been fighting for not even, I mean, not just the repeal of Leobor, but just bits and pieces of it. And we have gotten to the point where we're saying, no, we're not going to ask for this little nugget or this little nugget. We're going to say, just do away with the entire thing. And when you talk about Leobor, the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, and you think back, you were like, you would, you'd be like, this was implemented in 1974. And so much has changed in our society since 1974. Why don't um, law enforcement think that they need to go back and look at this bill and say that we need to change with the times. That hasn't happened. No other government officials have the rights that law enforcement has. When we as citizens commit a crime, we are held accountable. And so we're fighting for this change to do away with the law enforcement officers bill of rights because we feel law enforcement should not be above the law. And so let's just do away with it. And you hear people say, well, do away with it. What you need to replace it with something. No, we don't. So we have to fight that battle as well because we've been fighting that same battle. I know, I think it was probably 2014, if not before that. Um, asking, as I mentioned, about the little nuggets of change, reduce um, the number of days an officer has to be questioned from 10 days to zero. They negotiated and, you know, put this little carrot out there for us and gave us five days. We're saying no. I mean, why, if we as citizens have to be questioned the same day and give statements, officers should be the same. Um, so I'm feeling really good about that one, to, um, you know, and we have legislators backing us on that particular one. I hear we have a couple of senators that we're going to, you know, get to them and say they need to sign on as well. But yeah, the law enforcement officers bill of right, we're going to fight. It needs, it needs to go. It's needed to go many, many years ago. So that's one of them. And I'm, I'm not sure, Dana, if you want to take another one or you want me to to talk about another one. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about the 
the MPIA where we want to have these records be more transparent and what that would mean from your perspective as a, a family member? Absolutely. I, I think this the information when an officer uh, commits a, a crime or there is a complaint made by a law by a citizen against a law enforcement officer, the citizen should have the right to the information to know how a complaint was handled, if the law enforcement officer was reprimanded. And by no means are we as citizens asking you to provide us with any personal information about that law enforcement officer, which is one of the things, uh, challenges I guess we've had with them giving us the, the right to the information. They have say that that is part of the officer's personnel record. Well, let's just remove that, as I just, just shared. Remove it, you know, and give us the opportunity to be able to see exactly how all complaints against law enforcement officers are handled. I think that's just a let's just do it situation. I mean, we, we struggle with, we talk about we want to build trust between the community and law enforcement officers. What a way to do that, because that is, what we've been at, we've been asking for transparency. There is nothing to hide, release the information. Definitely. I mean, I think with thinking about those two, and then um, I wanted to talk just briefly about returning or having local control of our, the police department for the city of Baltimore, because I don't know if many people know this, but Baltimore City is the only jurisdiction in the entire state that doesn't control its own police department. So it's decisions about what happens with Baltimore police are come from the state. And we know that this state, this city has a has a history of racialized decision making policies, etc. And with Baltimore being one of two majority black jurisdictions, it makes no sense that this majority black jurisdiction should have should not have control over who, how the police how the police department operates how does it interact with citizens and so that the citizens of Baltimore City can have direct involvement and make those recommendations decisions to elected officials and ultimately as you've talked about before holding the elected officials accountable but we need to have that control in Baltimore City the decisions made by Baltimore residents, community leaders, et cetera, instead of by the state of Maryland. Another priority that we're looking at, and I think that we have really gained a lot of support is to make sure that there is very limited use of force. So that's completely reimagined and what is, what's considered force and how much force, um, recently as we're having discussions and learning about um, the, the many, many cases in Maryland and, and nationally of Black people who've been, uh, Marion, as I've heard you say, terrorized by police, um, harmed by police and police tactics. We know from listening to police body cameras and videos and whatnot that they're not valuing Black lives. And so the idea of force on a Black life has less meaning to them, to the police, than it, sh than it absolutely should. And we wanna make sure that again, officers are held accountable if they decide to, or find themselves taking more, more violent actions, more, more harmful actions 
against the, the lives and the bodies of, of black men and women and children. Absolutely. And Maryland is, is only one of nine states without a statewide use of force policy. It's fascinating how we, or I would say people who haven't lived in Maryland a long time, which kind of includes me, think of Maryland as this state that is, um, it's a, many people think of it as a Northern state where we wouldn't have some of these problems that we have in other parts of the country. It's not like Maryland's in the South. Well, we know we're learning. We know Maryland is a state, I don't know, Jekyll and Hyde. We were North, you know, there's part of us in the North, part of us in the South. And sadly, because of the history of um, after the Civil War through Reconstruction and Jim Crow, the racist white supremacist based practices of the police that started in the South made, you know, burrowed right on into to Maryland. And so we, this isn't just let's address or fix bad apples. It's about going to the root of the problem and changing and changing the entire system. Absolutely. You, and I know we're talking about Maryland, but I just want to throw out because you know that with again with the George Floyd murder where they now have the uh, federal legislation on the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which talks about uh, use of force. And, you know, we definitely want to focus in on, in on that here in Maryland, uh, you know, with the no-knock warrants. I think about Corinne Gaines in, in Maryland uh, with the no-knock warrant, and she loses her life. And so we definitely need to look, in, look into this, and we need to establish it here in the state of Maryland, as we will nationwide. Definitely. I think in, in, in thinking about Ms. Ms. Gaines and, and that her child was right there, um, it's reminding us why it's so important that we, that we address that. Our other legislative priority that we're looking forward to and continuing to have conversations with elected officials now is on school resource officers and their place um, in schools. What we want to see more of are resources dedicated to, to the arts, to counselors, to nurses, social workers, people who can provide you know, dance classes, music classes after school for children, and that the school resources are being used for that, not to bring in police officers who are taking the place in some cases of law enforcement on the street. We don't need, we don't need that in our schools. We know that school resource officers do not reduce quote, crime in schools. We know that more children, more black children, black girls and boys are pulled out of school because of the, because of the actions of a school resource officer making an entire difference in their trajectory in life. We also know that children with special needs, children with ind individual education plans are more likely to be harmed by these school resource officers. So we want them. We want them out of out of schools in Maryland. Absolutely, we want to eliminate them from building that school to prison pipeline that has created the world that we're in with the mass incarceration. Absolutely. Yeah, actually, on that point, you know, one of the thing, one of the many things we were working on, particularly in as a run up to the twenty twenty election, 
um, was making sure that people who are currently incarcerated who have the right to vote in the state of Maryland, but don't have access to the ballot. It's like they literally have the right, but no one, there's no infrastructure for them to be able to make their voice heard in our democracy. And so I wanted to talk to you, um, to, you know, to both of y'all about the importance of making sure that people who are currently incarcerated have that access to the, to the ballot, but also like what that means broader for our democracy. Marion, do you wanna start? I'll let you start on that one. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you start on that one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, again, it's hard, while it's hard for people to think that practices from Jim Crow or the early 60s have any meaning for us in Maryland right now, we know that we're living with the, the vestiges of these bad actions and decisions. One of the other ways that this that this shows up that's so important for everything we've been talking about today and so much of the work that we at the ACLU of Maryland do is expanding not just the promise of democracy, but the tools and the techniques and the policies and the laws to make that happen. We want to have voting accessible, available to every single Marylander whether they are currently incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, or at any stage of the legal justice system, there is a history of taking votes, voices, and power away from Black Americans, and that practice has continued here in Maryland. We want to make sure that all Marylanders have a chance to vote. When we at the ACLU talk about all Marylanders, we mean every single resident of this state, whether they are currently incarcerated, whether they're formally incarcerated, as is accessible now, but we wanna be sure that there is no excuse for making sure that every voice and vote are heard in our state. The practice of not allowing individuals to vote with either previous records or current records comes from, surprise, Jim Crow, comes from that history Post-slavery, when African-Americans were, were free, practices began in the South to figure out how do we get free labor? And guess what? Being Black became criminalized. And so those practices of arresting us, keeping us in jail, harming us, were, I would think of them as almost predecessors or steps to the point of, well, these people are, they're not, they're not earning money, they're in jail, we're saying they're committing crimes. So people in jail who committed crimes, we have to take the vote away from them. And coincidentally, it made sense for the white supremacists and citizens and elected officials of the South and other parts of the country after slavery, during, during Reconstruction to say, wait a minute, we don't really want to expand the vote. We need to have that in Maryland. Right now, the only two states where people can vote who are currently incarcerated are Maine and Vermont which happened to be approximately 90% white. Is that a coincidence? We don't think so. We wanna to work to make sure that the promise of democracy, the tools and the resources of democracy are available to everyone so their voice can be heard. The next thing I was actually gonna ask, ask you both about, and you know, it's really about education, right? Children in the state of Maryland have a constitutional right to an education. This is so unique to the state of Maryland. Most states don't have in their state constitution um, dictated a, a right to an education. 
Um, and even with that stated in our constitution, for generations, black and brown Marylanders have not had that promise uh, fulfilled. And so I wanted to talk to both of y'all, um, actually, you know, I'll start off with Marion just about the, the importance of that, particularly as we are, you know, trying to, you know, bring forth this new generation of, um, of leaders in our state of Maryland, why that's so important for the education to be prioritized. It's really important. Education is really important for all of our people, whether they're young, whether they're old. And for our young folk is even more important because we're dealing today with a country that is more racist than ever. And so having the, the tools, the monies and the resources to educate our young folk is really important. And so we as Marylanders have to push to make sure these monies are allocated, especially in the communities where our children don't have the funding, that they don't have the teachers necessarily that they need. Those teachers are allocated to the more white communities that we have to push to make certain that the same education levels that they're getting in the white communities that our children in the in the low income areas are getting the very same uh, level of of education because they are our future we see now in maryland even with all of these other demands that we've talked about er about earlier there's a lot of young folk out there and those young folk are our future and so again, it's inherent upon us that we make certain that they are given those tools to carry our future forward. I have my daughter is an, is an educator, not in the state of, well, she did in Maryland before, but she's in Washington, D.C. And she loves working with the younger pre-K, pre-three, no, I'm sorry, pre-K three and pre-K four, and to start them off so that they are prepared for their next level in the education ladder, if you will. And I look at that and I look at even, even beyond the, the pre-K pre -K three and four, how important it is. My daughter, my older daughter, because that was my younger daughter, my older daughter just received her undergrad in human, human resources. That, that just goes, goes to show you from one level to another level, how important education really is to our future. Thanks, Marion. Education equity has been a priority for us at the ACLU for a number of years. While many people celebrated, many people across the state celebrated the first, the passage of, of Kerwin, even though it was, you know, then vetoed by the, by the governor, our concern remains in terms of funding for um, for all children, particularly black children, um, brown children, and children in low-income neighborhoods and, and communities, that they have access to fantastic education. I know fantastic is not the word that's used in the Constitution. The word in the Constitution is adequate, and I think whenever I hear that word, I think, well, there's no parent who says, I want an adequate level of funding for my child's education, but at a minimum, we demand that our elected officials, our policymakers, figure out a way to provide the resources that children across our state need, particularly those children, those students who are in communities where there are fewer resources and fewer opportunities. 
one of the things that we have learned over this past year during, during COVID was while yes, the, the work still continues to fund schools properly for what was needed in a traditional in-person environment, we know that there are many families, many children who don't necessarily have access to the technology that they need to be successful in school and what are the opportunities that they may be that they may be missing out on so there's there's two challenges that children and families are having in order to have top-notch education more than quality education for children who have been denied this constitutional right for for decades and even with that dana when i when i think about that I think about how the interconnection works with the communities that don't have the tools and the resources that they need and the high level of suspensions and expulsions and the probability of them moving on to that school to prison pipeline. So it all kind of, as I mentioned, interconnects. Absolutely. When you, with, and it connects to our earlier, connects to our earlier conversation a little bit about um, these school resource officers in schools where resources are being used to basically connect to everything you said, to being put in detention, to being put into jail, to then not wanting to con continue to engage with their education and not finding then opportunities to do the things that we know we want for our children in, in terms of being successful and being able to thrive in life and in their their careers, professions, whatever it might be. Something that I think is particularly concerning is, I mean, as you, you said, children are, being, children are being criminalized, Black children are being criminalized at a very, very young age. And that's, that's racist, that's wrong. And much of that, that attitude then bleeds into certainly education as a, as, a major, as a major public system in our country. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and our black and brown babies at a disproportionate rate to their white counterparts. You're right. So Dana, you know, and, and Marion, we talked a lot about the issues that we're working on, but one of the things that I love about the ACLU of Maryland is that we are a multi-issue organization and we've always been that at the kind of the core of the organization. So I wanted to actually ask you about if you could just, you know, more briefly talk about some of the other things we're working on. Um, and don't worry, this is not the exhaustive list of the things we're working on, but just some of the other highlights of the, um, of some of our vision for 2024 and, and for the future of Maryland. What we're especially looking forward to as we move through 2021 through 2024 at the ACLU of Maryland are priority areas of work that we believe will help us most effectively address systemic racism and address practices and policies across the state which are damaging and un or unhelpful um, to the lives of Black Marylanders, Black and Brown Marylanders. In addition to our voting rights work, our education efforts, as well as our government accountability priority um, with related to our police work, ACLU of Maryland is also focused on individual autonomy, privacy, to make sure that individuals who make a decision to live, think, and speak freely 
are able to do it without discrimination based on who they are, unwarranted surveillance, where their bodily integrity is protected, and with equitable access to the public square. So that the free speech guideline, which is key to our democracy, is able to be accessed by every single Marylander. Also, our work in immigrants' rights, as we work towards seeing that all Marylanders are empowered to fully participate in society at all levels, locally, across the state, regardless of their citizenship or their legal status. And over the years, ACLU of Maryland has worked closely with the, the justice system as we work to advocate on behalf of individuals. We want to be sure we have, by 2024, an equitable justice system that prioritizes community-centered approaches, approaches that, are, that come from the experience and the expertise and lived lives of those who are directly impacted by these issues, particularly around public safety. And we want to see a Maryland that ends our primary reliance on incarceration. What gives me hope and inspires me about the future is thinking about the role that the ACLU of Maryland will play in making sure that the promise of the constitution of our state is accessible to the black and brown and indigenous families and communities of our state for whom it has been denied all these years. When we think about whether it's the justice system, voting rights, education, first amendment, free speech, all of these, all of these issues and matters, all of these are issues and areas where the involvement, the leadership of Black Marylanders has not been available to have the voice of all Marylanders, particularly those who are incarcerated, who have been removed from community. And, you know, one of the, the many ways we can make our voices heard to, to really address the laundry list of systemic issues that we've been seeing, particularly as it relates to Black and Brown people in the state of Maryland and in the country, is through voting. And um, surprise, surprise, we just had a major election. And in that election, we saw a record amount of turnout in every state in the country. And I just wanted to ask you to, to comment about what that turnout really means for both for our democracy, but also as we move forward to really help to make this country and state a more perfect and more inclusive union. Definitely the numbers, people came out and voted in record numbers and in state of Maryland included in those numbers. It definitely shows that the issues that are important to our Americans and, and important to our democracy was shown in the number of people that turned out to vote. It's still, when I look at the numbers, however, I look at, it's like this country is so divided because it's almost, when you look at the popular vote, I mean, there is a, a, a difference of about what, 7 million people. But when you look at the number of people that voted, it's like half and almost 50%, 50%. And so it just shows that we're gonna have a really hard, if you will, fight on our hands to get the issues that are important to our democracy and important to the people, especially the Marylanders and people of color, that fight's gonna be a really, really tough one. But I think we have a better chance 
with this new administration coming in to focus on what we consider law and order than the law and order that was being discussed in this current administration. I'm looking forward to the fight. What, what it encourages me about the 2020 election cycle and particularly election day and those election day, which is now election weeks, election season, were the number of organizations, groups that were led by black youth, black young people, um, indigenous communities, Latinx communities, the LGBT community, people were out and I'm saying, I'm thinking people to see all of these organizations led by, led by young people to not just, I know in years past, we've seen, you know, campaigns for young people to vote and it would be go, you know, go to vote. This year, what I saw were reasons to be engaged in democracy. Voting is the thing you have, is the thing you have to do to make sure that your voice is a part of that small d democratic conversation. Organizations that even at the beginning of 2019 may not have been formed, people may not have been familiar with them, but between Movement for Black Lives, um, Black Lives Matter, um, Color of Change, Black Voters Matter, I mean, all of these different organizations that were led by, by women, by younger people are, are serious about what comes next. All of these organizations and these individuals who were, were mobilized to come out and vote, I don't believe are gonna to go to sleep and wait for four more years to come back to action because people know that everything has to be, everything and 2020 has to be reimagined. Everything does. And these young activists and organizers will will show will show people the way across the country and i'm really looking forward to that yeah I, you know dana I, I i feel the same way it was like to seeing seeing the youth and our black and brown people come out in record numbers they were saying to me that i'm taking control of our future and that's something i think we have taken for granted in the past but no more no more I, I, I'm hopeful on that on that point. Um, hopeful, I like that word. Hopeful. Well, I'm I'm really trying to echo yours because I'm I'm a typically pessimistic person, and and your your words give me some hope. And actually, on on that note, uh, if we can continue this hopeful train, what is your overall you know message? You know, as we are rounding out a unforgettable year, I'm so looking forward to the year being over and look moving towards 2021. What is your overall message for Marylanders um, as, as we look towards the future and continuing to, to fight in numerous ways? Like what, what would you like to say to them? I guess what I want to say to the Marylanders is that I want you to stand up and stay strong and to stay the course. We're on the right path. And if we continue to work together collectively and collaboratively, we will get the job that we have set forth to get to be done. Yes, yeah, stay the course. I would like to say to, to all Marylanders, 
to remember the history and learn the history of this state and know what an important role we played in the formation of this state and how the, the laws, the constitution of our state then and today failed to include everyone in the promise of Maryland in Maryland's future. We want Marylanders to, yes, come out and stand strong and stay the course and focus, help us focus on how do we make sure that the future is accessible to the black and brown children, families and communities who were not, who were not, not a part of its founding. I would ask Marylanders to learn our history, be inspired by it, be challenged by it, and know that we can change the course of history for our state and make the promise of our state's constitution truly accessible to all Marylanders. To understand that Black Lives Matter in Maryland and everywhere, and to work with organizations like the ACLU of Maryland to help us achieve that so that everyone's humanity is valued and respected by law and policy. Our wish for Maryland, for Marylanders, is that in the next year, people will be inspired, motivated, and challenged by our state's history, where we began, where we are now, and where we're moving forward. As an organization, the ACLU of Maryland, the American Civil Liberties Union of Maryland, has a vision that everyone in this state is united in affirming and exercising their rights to make sure that inequities are removed and that we're able to fulfill the country's unrealized promise of justice and freedom for all. We know that's a big vision, but we believe that we can get there. We're grateful to the support of our members across the state, our donors, our supporters, everyone who has sent a note or posts great notes to us on social media. We look forward to the year ahead because we're working together, your staff across the state, our colleagues and partners, et cetera. We at the ACLU exist to make sure that Maryland are empowered to exercise their rights and that the laws value and uplift their humanity. This is so important and we're grateful for your support and your continued engagement in our work. Thank you. I love it. And I would also say that we are fighting for our democracy. We're fighting for the future of Maryland and the citizens and more specifically the youth of the state of Maryland and coming together united and working in solidarity, we can accomplish it. We can do this together. Well, thank you, Dana and Marion for talking with us today. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well. Thanks so much, Amber. All right, thank you, ladies. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review, subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. 
To learn more about how you can join the efforts of over 90 organizations across the state of Maryland fighting for real police reform, along with our other issue areas, visit our website, aclu-md.org. If you have questions or comments about the show, please send us the email at aclu at aclu-md.org. We like to hear feedback from our listeners. This show was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time, have a happy new year and see you 2020.